Thus far at this point of life, I've not had a doctor tell me you need glasses. I've been very fortunate. It is funny. I guess I am at that stage where if I'm in the car in order to see clearly what's ahead, I sometimes have to turn the radio down, but that's probably something else entirely. But glasses or not, there are times in life when it's hard to see. Maybe a crossroads of life. Maybe a situation, be it personal, family, vocational, when it's hard to see what's ahead or maybe it's hard to see what to do. Well, we're not alone. In Jesus' day, folks struggled with difficulty seeing as well. Today, we are in Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 17. Jesus is about to go up to Jerusalem and This is right before the triumphal entry. He takes the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he says to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. Jesus is once again attempting to prepare the disciples for what is ahead. There's a promise of pain. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. But there's also the promise of victory. On the third day, he, Jesus, will be raised up. And even as this reminder is filled with both the promise of pain and the promise of victory, for the disciples, it's hard to see. It's almost as if there's a group-wide case of nearsightedness. Many of us, I'm sure, have either been the messenger of unpleasant news or we've been the recipient of information that's hard to hear. No one likes to hear bad news. No one likes to deliver bad news. That line about (laughs) denial. Well, Jesus is not trying to scare the disciples. Jesus is once again attempting to prepare them for what is ahead. And Jesus is telling them this information not only to ease shock and surprise, but so that the disciples will see again that his word is trustworthy. The very end of Scripture tells us that the word of the Lord is faithful and true. Jesus is the word of the Lord made flesh. Jesus is faithful and Jesus is true. All of this that Jesus is telling the disciples will come to pass. And the disciples will see all of this in full in time. We're not told here the disciples' responses to Jesus' warning as they proceed to Jerusalem, but... In fact, church history implies that many of these disciples will in time face similar fates as they will begin to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Jesus has warned them of the hard road before, and he does again. And Jesus warns us as well. In verse 20, we read the following. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. 
And he said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. (laughs) Don't you just love it when mom gets involved? Maybe you've been a coach of a of a rec league team. Maybe you've been a sponsor of a cheerleading squad. Don't you just love it when moms, stage moms, get involved? Well, this seems like a fairly brazen request. She wants Jesus to command it to happen. All she can see is an earthly king and an earthly king's court with her baby boys seated in places of prominence. We can look at scriptures which mention the family of James and John. We know that they are the sons of Zebedee. When James and John are called to the ministry by Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, we notice something. In Mark chapter 1, verse 19, Jesus saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who are in the boat mending the nets. And immediately Jesus calls them, and they leave their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they go away to follow Jesus. And actually, if we rewind one verse prior, in Mark chapter 1, verse 18, we see that Simon Peter and Andrew are in the boat working with these brothers and their father. There's implication that they are all working together, that all of these worked for, we'll call him Papa Zebedee, and they leave to follow Jesus. And Papa Zebedee is left with other hired men. If there are other men hired to work in these fishing boats after the four leave, well, this implies that the elder Zebedee must be a man of means. He, he must be a captain of industry there. For the sons to leave the business and their mother at this point in their ministry to now come to Jesus and bow shows a respect for Jesus. In fact, some Bible scholars imply that Mama Zebedee is present at the crucifixion and that she might be one of the women who will find Jesus' tomb empty. The whole family must follow Jesus with some degree of devotion and respect. But it's hard for Mama Zebedee to see. We read in verse 22, Jesus' response. You did not know what you were asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they say to Jesus, We are able. He said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? This cup for which Jesus would request a bypass. In Matthew chapter 26, just after the Last Supper with the disciples, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Uh, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. So that question 
Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? That's not a question one should answer lightly or flippantly. What do the brothers say? The brothers say to Jesus, we are able. Jesus, at various points during these kingdom encounters in Matthew, Jesus has tried to prepare these disciples for the hard road that's ahead. And we just started with that today, there in verses 17 through 19. My cup you shall drink. Words that, if we're honest, these words are really tough to hear. My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. I'm not in charge of seating. My Father is. The Father will prepare that seating. What does that mean? It's the Father's supreme and sovereign will to assign that seating. There's a great quote that is attributed to the 12th century preacher and teacher Bernard of Clairvaux that, that says the following, The throne is the price of tolls, not a grace granted to ambition, a reward of righteousness, not the concession of a request. Years down the road, John, one of these sons of Zebedee, when he is an old man, he will be exiled on the island of Patmos. At this point, he has outlived his brother James, who was martyred for the cause of Christ. And we find out that James had been killed years earlier by King Herod in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. The elder John is given a revelation of final things one morning when he is in worship on the Lord's Day. This revelation of Jesus is what we know as the final book of the Bible, Revelation. And Revelation chapter 1 tells us that John was to write this vision down and send it to seven churches in Asia. And one of the churches was in an area named Laodicea. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, we read, this is the greeting of that letter. To the church in Laodicea write, and this is the heading, this is the author, this is the voice of the letter, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, that's describing Jesus. Jesus says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. This message continues, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Turn from your sins. And then a very famous verse out of Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What did Jesus overcome? 
persecution and death. We see this in Revelation chapter 3. Let me read that again. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. I think it's safe to say that Jesus was absolutely correct when he told James and John and their mother, you do not know what you are asking. They had no idea of what was down the road. James' murder at the hands of Herod. They had no idea of John's decades of persecution and eventual exile. For this family who really is trying to show eager and earnest support, for them it's hard to see what kingdom prominence will entail over that long, hard road. Verse 24. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. They're all there together. They hear the request of the mother of James and John, and the other ten are going, Are you kidding me? (laughs) They're indignant. But Jesus calls them over to himself and says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. We've seen this before, haven't we? Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be the first among you shall be your slave. The last will be first, and the first will be last. For the disciples, it's it's hard to see. Their culture, uh, their culture in which they are living and ministering, it's a culture of Gentile Roman rule. And their culture is modeling for them One picture of greatness. But Jesus is again trying to show them what greatness in the kingdom looks like. Entirely different than what their culture of Gentile Roman rule presents them. And we have the same thing today, don't we? Our culture in 2020 wants to model ways of lifestyle, of success, of disposable relationships for us. And what culture presents to us is in direct opposition to Scripture. And Jesus knows that for the disciples, it's hard to see. In verse 29, we read, As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd is following Jesus. And two men sitting by the road, they're hearing that Jesus is passing by. They cry out, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David! And the crowd is sternly telling them to be quiet. But they cry out all the more, Lord, Son of David, have mercy upon us. I'm imagining the the backstory of these two blind men. Why are they blind? Well, Matthew doesn't tell us. They're crying out, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. Well, this isn't the first time Jesus has been called Son of David. The very first time Jesus is referred to as the Son of David is in the first verse of the first chapter of the first book of the New Testament. Yes, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, 
the son of Abraham. Matthew chapter 1 has a family history. Why do the blind men refer to Jesus as the son of David? Well, whether by hearing or maybe at some point in their lives, if they were able to read, these blind men know the law and the prophets. They know the Old Testament. And in that family history, that genealogy in Matthew, chapter 1, verse 66, we read that part of Jesus' family tree, there's a man named Jesse, and Jesse is the father of David. And you remember David, the youngest son of Jesse, who kills Goliath and who becomes the eventual king of Israel. Well, the blind men, they, they evidently know the story of David and the promise that David received from the Lord. The Lord tells David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And David this son of Jesse would have a descendant spring from his family line. And the blind men, they also know a prophecy about David's descendant from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 11. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Also, the blind men evidently understand the picture that the Lord gave another prophet, Jeremiah, regarding this branch that would spring from the family tree of Jesse and David. In Jeremiah chapter 23, we read, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our Righteousness." So for the blind men to cry out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David, this is extremely significant. In verse 32, we read that Jesus stops and calls them, and he says, What do you want me to do for you? And they say to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. And moved with compassion, Jesus touches their eyes and immediately they regain their sight and they follow Jesus. I think Jesus knew the answer before the blind men even answered the question. The blind men could see Jesus, the son of David, for who he really is and why he has come. Moved with compassion. We just saw this a couple of chapters ago. Do you remember the parable of the servant who owed a huge debt? And the king to, to whom this huge debt was owed was moved with compassion and forgave what was an unpayable debt. So for the blind men to cry out, Lord, have mercy on a son of David, this is extremely significant. Jesus, the son of David, Jesus, the Son of David, for these blind men, for them, despite their physical blindness, 
For them, it is not hard to see. Maybe it was due to the fact that they were able, even while blind, to connect the dots. Regarding Jesus' real identity, Jesus knows there are still a few more kingdom encounters, there's some more work ahead, and his mission hasn't reached full climax yet. You see, what the blind men are crying is very similar to what the crowds will cry in the very next chapter on Palm Sunday, announcing Jesus' triumphal entry. Hosanna, Son of David, Lord have mercy on us, Son of David, we beseech you now. Hard to see. Hard to see. Why are these things about Jesus so hard to see? I believe for the disciples, there's a sense of denial. There's a sense of denial about what fate lies ahead, not just for Jesus, but for themselves. I believe for Mother Zebedee and her sons, they see opportunity. They don't see the sacrifice that's ahead. But the blind men, they could see. They had faith in what they knew because of what they knew from God's Word. Because of what God's Word had said to them, had told them about the coming Messiah. They had the faith to believe even when they couldn't see. And maybe you're dealing with something that's hard to see. Do you have the faith to believe past what you can see? Jesus is our faithful and true witness, and his words are faithful and true. When it's hard to see, can you believe?